Good morning. If you brought a Bible with you, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. And if you don't have one, there are Bibles in the back at the coffee bar. Feel free to go back and get one. It's our gift to you if you do not have one. We're in Isaiah 42 today, starting a new series. There was cheering about that. Does that mean you didn't like the last one? No. All right, good. Just clarifying. Uh, Without question, the most important figure that's ever lived is Jesus Christ. Whether you're here today and you believe the Christian narrative of Jesus or not, there's simply no good argument that a single person other than Jesus has made a larger contribution to the history of humanity. Most of the world's religions, not all of them, but most of them in some way acknowledge Jesus. Now there's lots of different opinions about him and what he accomplished and who he was, but they acknowledge the impact that he's made. Who exactly was Jesus and what did he come to do? Those questions, of course, lead to other questions like, is he still alive? And if so, what is he doing today? And what is a proper response to him? Over the next several weeks, we're going to try and answer those questions. And that will lead us up through Good Friday and also Easter. There's plenty of places in the scriptures we could go to try and answer those questions. I think the most obvious place would be the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that very directly tell us the narrative of Jesus' life here on earth. But we're not going to go there. That would be too easy, right? We've got to make this a a little more spicy and interesting. So what we're going to do is try to tackle those questions in maybe a little bit more atypical fashion. We're not going to look directly at Jesus' actions, per se, or his words. We're going to look much, much, much earlier in the story at the book of Isaiah. We're going to take what may be some, some more obscure passages in your mind to discover what Jesus' character and mission are really all about. We're going to do, th- do so through uh, what we might call this mysterious figure that shows up in the book of Isaiah called uh, the servant, known as God's servant. There are four what, what are called servant songs in Isaiah that masterfully proclaim who Jesus is. And so we're going to start today a series that will lead us, as I said, up through Easter. And if you'll give me three or four minutes, I want to explain the context of these songs. And uh, don't worry, I won't sing them. Um, About 700 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. So if you're familiar with the story, around the first century, there are comes a very famous baby that's born in Jerusalem, in in the Jerusalem area, known as uh, Jesus Christ. But if we rewind history about 700 years before that, the scriptures very accurately predict who Jesus is and what he would do. In fact, as we'll come to see, in shocking detail, they tell us about his, his character and about his work. If you're here today and you're new to the Bible, that might seem a bit perplexing to you. 
You see, the Bible is actually a library of books. It's not a book. There's 66 books contained in this one book, written by dozens of authors in three different languages, multiple continents, over a span of about 1,500 years. So what you hold is actually a very remarkable library that covers an enormous amount of time and different cultures of people. So if you're in Isaiah now, if you were to turn from Isaiah to, to Matthew, you're not only covering material, covering different centuries, but you're covering material written about 700 years apart from each other. So 8th century B.C. versus 1st century A.D., Now, for some of us in the room who would call ourselves Christians, who are people who have ascribed to the belief and the character of Jesus and are seeking to live our lives patterned after him, for some of us, this issue of prophecy that we're going to look at today was a decisive issue for you. It's, as you consider, do I believe the claims of Christ, one of the things that tipped the scales for you from unbelief to belief was... The fact that this book precisely predicts what Jesus came to do. So some of you here today who are not yet, are not yet decided, you haven't yet made a decision about what you think about Jesus, perhaps this will be helpful for you as it is for some others in the room. Isaiah is known as a, a prophetic book. Now, Old Testament prophecy is a little bit trippy. Uh, it was written... And this can be a little confusing because if if we were alive at the time of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet, meaning um, he spoke to the people of his day in a way to proclaim to them the truth of what God wanted to say to them in their current circumstances. The message was designed not to say someday in some far off place, here's God's word to you, but right now, here's what God has to say to you. And an element of that was, this is what will happen in the future. But the force of it was, here's what God wants you to do today. And yet, today, all these days later, we read the same books. And we read it not so much reading about something that's going to happen in the future, but what's already happened in the past. So I think these books can be confusing to us. They were written to communicate immediate fulfillment and future fulfillment, but the vast majority of things they talk about have already happened. So have I lost you already? So in other words, the prophecy in the Old Testament, the vast, vast, vast majority of it is referring to things that have already taken place. But we're going to read them in the sense of the original hearers. They heard them saying, here's what's coming up. We read them saying, here's what's already happened. And yet, just like Isaiah's day, it is designed to have an effect upon us today. Isaiah was originally speaking to Israelites who were living in a period of hardship and exile. The nation of Babylon had come and conquered them, and they had taken people away from their homeland. And Isaiah's message was, here's what God would say to you today. Here's how to repent and return to God. God told them to repent by promising a leader who would come who would bring joy. And he was talking ultimately about Jesus. So that's the context. Let's check it out together in Isaiah verse uh, 1 of chapter 42. 
Here is my servant. We've called this series Servant Songs because this word servant is going to come up lots of times. And it was a bit mysterious in its day, but was designed to point forward to the person of Jesus, who we now look back on. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. That clears it all up, doesn't it? From the very start of this song, we're hit with a confusing apparent contradiction. Maybe you caught it. It says that this servant would be a servant, and yet this servant would bring justice. Does that seem odd to you? Servants don't bring justice. That's not what servants do. People in power bring justice. Kings bring justice. If you find Jesus to be somewhat enigmatic and difficult to figure out, then you're in good company. Jesus is unlike anybody else who's ever lived. He's hard to dissect. He's multifaceted. He's not easily understood. Hard, but not impossible. And so today we want to try and portray just one picture of who he is, and we'll seek to do that in each of the coming weeks. Now, a key word in this passage to understand is the word justice. Justice, I think, is a bit of a mixed bag today. We want it when people do something harmful to us. And we want to pretend it doesn't exist when we do something harmful to others. So we desire it and we undesire it. We seek it and we reject it, dependent upon our own actions. But what is it? I mean, the, fr- the phrase as we hear it most often is used in politics as bringing someone to justice. But what does that mean? And what does the word mean when it's in the scriptures? Well, the phrase in the scriptures means the right ordering of the world. Justice is the right ordering of the world. Justice is living in the world that we all want. To bring justice is the work of a king. It requires authority. It requires power. It requires tremendous moral compass. It's the triumph of truth over the tyranny of evil. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word servant, that's not even anywhere in the picture. It's not what all, that's not at all what I think of when I hear the word servant. Now, if you'll give me a little bit of license here, I'd like to use a silly illustration to try and help you get the picture. Is that okay? Good, because that's what we're going to do. We've all been to a restaurant and had terrible service. So you go in, you wait to be seated, and then you sit down and you wait for the menu, and then you wait to order your waters, and then you wait even longer to order your meal. Are you with me? All right. So finally, you've placed your order and you've saved up and you order a big, juicy steak. Why, I don't know, but that's what you do. And eventually, 
After you've exhausted everything that you know with your company, the steak comes. You slice into it and you hear a faint... The sucker is still mooing on the plate. Blood oozes out. You're thoroughly disgusted. So eventually, those of you that aren't carnivores, track down your waiter. You say politely, of course, because you're a Christian, my steak is still mooing. They take the steak back, and how does it return to you? Scorched. You can't hardly cut the thing. It's like chewing on a piece of leather. So you want to rectify this problem, correct? What do you do? You don't ask for the busboy. You ask for the manager, right? Why? You've got to go to the person with authority. You've got to go to the person that has something to say and the ability with which to do something about the situation, correct? You don't ask for the person that comes to clean up your dishes when you're done. Now, very crudely, of course, that gets us sort of to the tension that's in this passage. So if you were alive in the days of Isaiah, you longed for someone with power to come. You desired the manager, if you will, of the world to come and fix the situation. Because life didn't look like it was supposed to look. And so in the book of Isaiah is described this person who would come in the future with power and could fix things. And yet there's this other person that's talked about. There's a busboy. There's a servant. There's one who was designed to do the things that God says to do. And in the blockbuster of all blockbusters... It turns out that the manager and the busboy is the same person. But nobody put those two ideas together. Until Jesus walked on the scene, nobody conceived of a future in which a leader would come who would be both the servant, the busboy, and the manager. Or better yet, the owner. And yet that's exactly what this text is telling us Jesus is. Jesus would be the servant who would come and bring justice. Jesus gets the results of the king, but he takes the posture of the busboy. So no wonder this is confusing. Because that's not the way through which we view the world. That's certainly not the way that we would think about God. How did Jesus bring justice to earth? He brought it through mistreatment. He brought it through being mocked. He brought it through being spit on. He brought it through being blindfolded and struck in the face. He brought it through being lied and abandoned. He brought it through being tortured and executed. By these very actions, the actions of a servant, Jesus was crowned king. Some have called this the upside-down kingdom. And you can see why, can't you? It's not at all the story we would have expected. So, seriously now, how is that even possible? How is it that a servant could become king? How can the same person be the busboy and the manager? How can Jesus be servant and king? How can he get the king's results 
without using the brute force of a king. Again, until Jesus came, nobody put these two thoughts together. The servant of Isaiah was thought to be the people of God, suffering for him. And the Messiah was thought to be the great, powerful deliverer. And yet, the two came together. If you don't see both of them in Jesus, you'll never understand Jesus. Because he is the perfect blend of someone who would be willing to lay down his life and yet call you to lay down everything for him. Jesus is king, but he exercises his kingship not in brute force, but in gentle servanthood. Verse 3 will tell us how that plays itself out. Jesus is a gentle king, a healing king. Here's what he says. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings the islands will put their hope. Again, that's crystal clear. Some of us really like prophetic books. If you're in that camp, would you raise your hand? I'm just curious how many of those we have. A few of you. Some of us just really gravitate towards this kind of literature in the Bible. Others of us think, would you just say it plainly, please? The amazing thing to me is that God understands we're wired in different ways. And so he's chosen to communicate his truth in a variety of different forms. Not all of us turn the radio on the same station. Not all of us gravitate towards the same kinds of writing in the Scripture. There's genres in the Bible just like there's genres on the radio. So if this is difficult for you, it's not that you're somehow unspiritual. It might be that it just doesn't resonate easily with the way God's made you. But all of Scripture is designed by God to communicate truth about Him. So what is he saying about a bruised reed he won't break and a smoldering wick he won't snuff out? We've got to do a little work here to get a picture of what's being said. A bruised reed is a stalk of grain that, it is, that has experienced severe trauma. It's been busted. It's crushed. Isaiah says, the servant king, so Jesus is not going to take a bruised reed and then break it. Now that just makes it all the more clear, right? A stalk of grain that's been broken is done for. It's over. It may not be completely detached from itself, but it's just a matter of time before it dies. So what in the world is this talking about? Well, it's actually pretty clear. It's talking about you. It's talking about me. Do you feel beat up by life? Have circumstances ever caused you to feel absolutely crushed? Just pummeled? Do you have an internal sense of brokenness that nothing can seem to fix? 
Me too. We are all busted reeds. Jesus is attracted to the bruised and the busted. If you don't get anything else today, I hope you get that. What this prophecy is saying is that the the person of Jesus Christ came to bind up the brokenhearted, to preach the gospel to the poor, to set free those who are downtrodden, He came not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. He came not for those who've got it all together, but for those who know they don't. It's amazing to me that the church can mess that up so badly. That we can create environments in which you feel as though if I don't look right, talk right, act right, have memorized this, and have no moral failures, then I'm not welcome here. There could be nothing more Jesus-unlike than that. Jesus came to fix those who need fixing, not those who think they don't. Tim Keller, whose sermon on this passage was massively helpful to me, put it like this. Jesus Christ, the servant, is attracted to hopeless cases. He loves the fragile. He loves people who are beaten and who are battered and who are bruised and maybe don't show it on the outside, but inside they're dying. He knows what to do with them. Over and over and over again, the Bible says it like this. He binds up the brokenhearted and he heals their wounds. When you think of Jesus, is that what you think of? I hope so. Because there isn't another Jesus. If your image, when you think of him, is something different, then for a variety of different reasons, you've created an image of Jesus that isn't real. It's just a mirage. My dear friends, we are, we are busted reeds. We're created for fellowship with God in a rightful exercise of His stewardship on the earth. We're designed to reflect something of who He is. But in each and every one of our circumstances, inside each and every one of us, we're broken mirrors. We do that imperfectly. We don't have to look far to see evidence that the world is a bruised place. All you've got to do is hold up a mirror. The evidence is written on your own soul. You bear the scars, and you've inflicted scars on others. Now, just a quick aside here. Some of us need to take our cue from Jesus. Some of us take the bruised and broken and we break them more ourselves. We're like a bull in a china closet. Others of us know we're bruised, and so we break ourselves 
over and over and over and over again. And some of you are really screwed up and you do both. We would do well to seek to be like our Savior. We don't take people who are already beat up and beat them up more. We don't take people who are bruised and bruise them further. Instead, we seek to share life-giving truth and model the love and the grace of Christ. I hope what this series will do for us is help us to gain a better and fuller understanding of who Jesus is. And that as we do that, that God would do a supernatural work in your life. And that's to come and to minister to you in exactly your point of need, enabling you to be put together again by Christ. Now what the broken world needs is justice. Justice is the key word in this passage. We touched on it a few minutes ago, but I want to take just a minute more to try and unpack it further for us. When we think of justice, we think of punishing a wrong. That's the image that's conjured up in our minds. We think of correcting some act of unfairness. I think if I had a quarter for every time one of my children has said, that's not fair, I could retire and do this for free. We seem hardwired from birth to revel against anything that feels unjust against us. How many of those things are actually unjust is up for debate. But when we think of justice, we think of punishing a wrong. That is justice, but the biblical picture of it is actually much richer, much more full. I said it earlier, but let me say it again. Justice is the right ordering of the world. It's ending chaos and bringing peace. It's putting things right again. So in that vision, a just world is a world where everything is in right relationship with everything else. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be amazing? A world where things fit together as they're supposed to. Would you take a second to imagine for me what it would be like to live in a world like that? Imagine a world where no child is unwanted. Did you know in Phoenix, Arizona today, there are thousands of children who are so unwanted that there's not enough homes to put them in, so they're in group homes. Rooms with bunks. Imagine a world where that doesn't happen. Where every child has a father and mother who's devoted to their good. That's justice. Imagine a world where a woman is never treated better or worse due to the relative shape of her body. Imagine a world where no one ever hears the word cancer. Again. Imagine a world where no man finds his entire sense of worth from work, only to arrive at that coveted corner office with an empty soul and a string of broken relationships. Imagine a world where 
You never know the pain of being laid off due to a lack of funds. Imagine no war in Syria, no provocation of Crimea by the bully Russia, no AIDS ravaging Africa, no woman lying alone in bed in a pool of tears because he got what he wanted then left. Imagine a world where no one has a gnawing sense of emptiness inside. Friends, that's the picture of justice in the Bible. That's a just world. The Old Testament word for it is shalom, peace. It's far more than getting back at someone who did something bad to me. It's God putting things back together again, the way they're supposed to be, the way he designed them to be. One author put it like this, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Old Testament's prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or ceasefire among enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. Is that just the stuff of fairy tales and Hollywood endings? Or is it the future? Your answer to that question is rooted in one thing. It's what do you do with the person of Jesus? Because Jesus says, I came to break forth in history and bring what's called the kingdom of God. And so in the middle of a really broken world with busted reeds, people could be put back together again. People could start on a journey of being made whole and right with God. And then that would express itself not just in things being fixed with God, but in things being fixed with other people who are also fixed with God. That's what church is. And then that could be shared with the world. Until eventually one day that king would come back and all who know him would live forever in a place of justice. That's what all of history has been about and that's where it's screaming towards. And so it's not the stuff of fairy tales. It's the truth of where we're headed. And it's the truth of where you can be headed if you'll respond to Jesus. But now, of course, we're in a place of a lack of justice. So where did that come from? Where did things get so out of whack? Well, if you get bored with the Bible quickly, even you can get to that part of the story. It's only three chapters in. It's on the second page. You see, Adam and Eve were the first human beings. They chose to sin, to rebel against God, and they fell out of right relationship with Him. So at that moment, peace 
justice was broken, lost, and chaos in every area ensued. First, things fell apart inside of them. Their natural roles and positions in life became wrought with difficulty. Then their relationship with each other experienced brokenness. So marriage, a relationship designed for companionship and joy, found itself in deep, deep conflict. Social chaos was next, and eventually they would die. Sickness, disease, carnage, all of that came from sin. The bustedness inside of you is a result, first of all, of the bustedness inside of Adam and Eve. Now, before you point fingers at them, you've contributed too. What we've relegated to the stuff of dirty jokes and what we order for dessert is the word sin. But the brokenness in the world can just be summarized with that one word, sin. Sin ought to break our hearts because we break each other's hearts with it. Sin is the world's oldest, deepest, and most awful problem. Have you been wrecked by it lately? Have you experienced the hardship from it lately? Have you felt the effects of it upon the lives of those around you? I hope so, because it's everywhere. The real tragedy, of course, is that sin breaks the heart of God. So is there any hope? Yes, because there's a servant king. There's a healing king. Look at what he says in verse 3. A bruised reed he won't break, a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. In faithfulness he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings the islands will put their hope. The message ultimately of this passage is that God himself will be the ones to establish justice. In fact, he's already done it. So, as we said in the beginning, what the people in Isaiah's day looked forward to, we look back at. Isaiah said Jesus would not break us or snuff us out. Did you ever think you would hear about Jesus and snuff in the same sentence? Give me a second to try and explain this because this is amazing. Amazing picture given to us. In verse 4, the Hebrew says, which is the original language this was written in, the word for falter is the same as the word for break. And the word for discouraged is the same word as snuff out. Let me say that again. The word for falter is the same as break, and the word for discouraged is the same as snuff out. Now hang with me because this is really, really cool. Read it again and think of it in that way. The bruised reed he will not break. The smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. Here's the message. Jesus' death brought justice. 
And that justice was brought forth through the bruising and breaking of Jesus. He was the one snuffed out. So Jesus won't do to you, in other words, what was done to himself. Jesus won't exact the punishment upon you that he took upon himself. He died a torturous death. He took on sin and died under the wrath of God. He was snuffed out so that you don't have to be. In other words, Jesus faced the punishment we deserve in order that we could receive what he deserved. God himself put back together that which we broke. The one who needed the justice was the one who made it possible. That's incredible. All of us know that when we harm someone else, the forgiveness that we seek should be in line with the offense. Are you tracking with me? So this would never happen, of course, in my home, but just for illustration's sake. If, if uh, I was ever to commit an affair, there's a breaking of that relationship with Jill. Correct? Of course, I don't mean that could never happen. In case you don't know me well, let me explain. I think we all ought to think of sin, all of it, as possible for any of us. So, in other words, given the right set of circumstances and the right conditions in my own heart, there's nothing I'm incapable of. The moment we don't think that way is the moment you're propping yourself up to do the very thing you think you won't do. So, I've done what I never thought I would do. I've committed an affair. Jill finds out. Is the way to fix that going to simply be to say, I'm sorry? That was a boo-boo. I should not have done that. Is the forgiveness in line with the offense. No, they're like, they're like this, right? So how is it that a, a husband who commits an affair against his wife can make up for that? Can that happen? Is that possible? Yeah, I've seen it lots of times, in fact. How can that couple come back together again. If it takes more than words, what does it take? I don't want to be crude, but it, it takes being faithful with that which you are unfaithful with. Right? It takes actions. It takes not repeating the sin. It takes confession that what I did was wrong, how I used my body didn't honor God and didn't honor you. And then it takes time to demonstrate 
I'm going to use this body for good now. It has to be rebuilt, correct? I lost some of you with that. Ask me afterwards. I can use more specific language, okay? If you lost me. So if, on the other hand, the offense was um, when she says, honey, do I look fat in this? And I say, yes, my dear. (laughs) Then how's that going to get fixed? It's not, some of you say. (laughs) That's a verbal sin. You fix a verbal sin with a verbal apology. All of us understand this. This is how our justice system works. So you commit murder, you're not going to go away for six months. You speed, you're going to pay a fine. The the fixing of the action has got to be in line with the offense. So how can you fix an eternal offense before an eternal God. So if sin isn't just the mere harm of a husband and a wife, but is ultimately an affront to the Creator, and the comparison isn't person to person, but person to God, how do you fix that? You don't. You can't. And yet, if statistics pan out to be correct, about half of you are trying all the time. The whole filter through which you think about God is, I've got to earn or I've got to maintain His love and acceptance. And that's just downright stupid. It doesn't work. It's a husband saying to his wife, I'm sorry, I made a boo-boo. Only God could take on the penalty because only God is perfect and has always been. And so... In the most amazing story that could ever be told, that's exactly what happened. The offended one came and took on the offense in order that we could be given a right relationship with him. If that doesn't cause your heart to soar, then you've got to beg God to soften your hard heart. Because that's love unlike love you will ever experience anywhere else. Would you stand with me and let's pray. As we take just a moment in quiet prayer and reflection, I would invite you as some of our staff and leadership come here to the front, to consider what have you done with this servant king? Have you received him into your life, turned from sin and given everything you are to him? If not, you can today.
And if you have already, then are you living in light of what Jesus has already given you? Are you enjoying the fruit of the gospel in your heart? I'm going to pray over you in just a second. And then after we're dismissed, we'd invite you, if you'd like prayer, to come here to one of the staff or leaders. We'd love the opportunity to share with you more about how you can accept Christ or how to enjoy what you've already been given. So let me pray. Jesus, Father, these are, this is a tough passage, difficult to understand, and yet when we do the mining, then the, the precious ore emerges. When all the stuff is burned away, the diamond of the truth emerges. Thank you that we're not reading the stuff of fairy tales, but the greatest truth that there is. That Jesus came as a servant, lived a sacrificial life, died a substitutionary death in order that our sins could be placed on him and we could be given his right standing with God. I pray today that no one, no one would leave without responding in truth. If there's anybody here who's not saved, that they would respond. That they would come and seek prayer. And there's others who have already accepted Christ but have returned to living as though they're broken. And maybe even have been thinking, God is busting me up. That they too would come and would receive prayer to walk in the healing that Jesus provides. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.